Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Tuberculosis is still one of the world's biggest killers. A couple of decades ago, it was nearly wiped off the earth. But it's stuck around and resists treatment as it keeps mutating. We take a look at the development of new tools to fight an old disease. And science is riddled with persistent mysteries. How will the universe end? Why is gravity so weak? And what exactly is the sex life of eels? Believe it or not, no one really knows. Our correspondent dives deep to make himself more eel-informed. But first... Widespread and sometimes violent protests have gripped India. At issue is new legislation that, on paper, seems commendable. The government wants to make it easier for refugees from neighboring countries to gain citizenship. But the detail of the new law has upset many. It says that some people will be on a fast track to naturalization, provided they're from certain religious communities. But Muslims will receive no such benefit. Critics say it's part of a Hindu nationalist agenda to marginalize India's more than 200 million Muslims. And it has many Indians worried that the country's secular constitution is being eroded. So in response to the government's decision to amend India's citizenship laws, there have been protests all across India. Edward McBride is our Asia editor. Um, what's striking about these protests, India's a vociferous country, as they like to say. There, there are often protests about various things. But what's striking about these protests is, first of all, they, as I say, have been all across the country, in, in parts of the country that uh, you may not have thought would have felt that strongly about this change to the citizenship laws. They've been particularly notable on university campuses. And that suggests a, a third striking factor about it, that it's really the upper and middle classes who are protesting, not exclusively. Certainly there are lots of Muslim protesters because Muslims feel particularly targeted by these changes to the citizenship law. But it's the chattering classes, the kind of people that governments all around the world and, and India is no exception, tend to pay attention to. They're the ones who seem to be most up in arms. And why do, why do you suppose that is? Why are people reacting so violently to it? On the face of things that the change to the law doesn't look that dramatic, what's just been put into law is in effect a sort of supplement to the uh, existing citizenship law that gives a fast track uh, to Indian nationality to people from certain religions from Afghanistan, Pakistan and Bangladesh. And the government's argument was, well, there are religious minorities, Hindus, Sikhs, Jains, Christians that that are uh, persecuted to some extent in those countries and, and we're therefore giving them uh, some kind of reprieve, a chance of asylum. 
But the protesters gripe about this law is that it goes against the secular principles in India's constitution. And and most notably, it goes against them because it excludes Muslim refugees. And they're more or less the only religious group that, that aren't allowed this fast track to citizenship from those three countries. And... That, that that seems from first principles unfair. There are plenty of persecuted Muslims in those countries. But it also is just another way in which the present Hindu nationalist government seems to be sort of needling and eroding the rights of uh, India's Muslims. And and it's that attack on the secular nature of the Indian state that I think has, uh, has, has roiled the protesters and obviously Muslims in particular. It's kind of hard to square this because we've, we've spoken before about the, the, the Hindu nationalism being sort of a central tenet of, uh, of India's government at the moment. And it seems to, it's not specifically privileging Hindus, it's just specifically excluding Muslims. Well, I mean, you're right that, that Indians shouldn't be surprised by the fact that the government has taken another step that, that seems to, to uh, uh, an affront to Muslims. Or they've taken away the special status of India's only Muslim-majority state, Kashmir, and divided it into two territories now. They have been backing this kind of cull of, uh, of uh, citizens in the state of Assam, where they've, they've gone around sort of asking everyone to prove that they're a citizen with the idea of, of catching out people who they think might be illegal Muslim immigrants from from Bangladesh. But both the events in Kashmir and events in Assam haven't sort of caught the national imagination in that way. I think a lot of uh, ordinary Indians think of Kashmir as a sort of trouble spot and maybe sort of agree with the government that that, that, that the um, Kashmir had it coming, so to speak. And, and they maybe don't really fully understand what's going on in Assam or aren't that worried about it. But it's quite clear, obviously, to the protesters why this particular legal change is an attack on secularism. And it's not obvious, uh, you know, why it was necessary, why Muslims had to be excluded. So so this gesture of the BJPs and the, the Hindu nationalist government has caught the public, you know, upset the broader Indian public in a way that, that those previous attacks on Muslims haven't. And so this uprising, this response must come as something of a surprise to the government. I mean, what, what is the government doing? Yeah, so clearly the government was caught off guard. I think that that Narendra Modi, the prime minister, and others thought this would go down just as all those other uh, anti-Muslim measures have. And, and indeed, I think in a way they were kind of looking for another way in which they could sort of mobilize the Indian public against uh, Muslims. And so to have... The policy backfire in this way, I, I think, has been a bit of a surprise. But they haven't disowned it. I mean, all that they've said is that you know we're, we're just being compassionate to these poor Hindu refugees, right? So, so far at least, it, it looks like they're they're sticking to their guns. I suppose if the protests get worse or they figure they've they've really seriously politically miscalculated, that might change. But there's no sign of it yet. So if if the BJP, if the government doesn't want to budge and the protesters after a week of this don't seem to want to budge, then then what next? Well, there is a chance that the courts might weigh in. Uh, the Supreme Court has taken up a challenge to the uh, um, amendments to the citizenship law. The Supreme Court is a law unto itself. It could take its sweet time. It could decide that this is a matter of urgency and, and issue a quick ruling. And obviously... It, it could issue the ruling that the government is perfectly within its rights and there's no problem here. But India's constitution does include a clause that says, you know, all people present within India, not just even all citizens, all people within India will be treated with, you know, equal protection before the law. And 
Uh, it's it's pretty easy to make a case that the, this this new uh, uh, amendment doesn't meet that test. So it's possible that the Supreme Court will throw out the law or force the government to amend it in some way. I think for those protesting against the law, that's the best hope. Edward, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Every year, the tuberculosis bacterium makes 10 million people sick, and many of them die. Antibiotics and vaccinations have done much to reduce the death toll, but drug-resistant strains have cropped up, and the number of new cases is dropping by only a percent or two a year. Yet new drugs, vaccines, and tests are being developed to tackle TB, and there's hope that real progress could be made against the disease in the next decade. Tuberculosis kills more people than any other single pathogen. It kills a million and a half people a year. Slaveya Chankova is The Economist healthcare correspondent. That is more than three times the number who die from malaria, and it is more than the people who die in road accidents. And what's the pathology of it? How does TB propagate? It is an interesting pathogen, actually. When someone inhales the microbe, it's an airborne microbe. That's how you get it. In some cases, the immune system will kill it right away. But in other cases, the microbe will set up residence in the lungs and will stay there dormant for a long time. So most people will never get sick. It's only about 10% of people who have this dormant infection who will get the disease at some point in their lives. And so who's most at risk from it? Those with weakened immune systems, so people with HIV-AIDS. In fact, tuberculosis is the main killer of people who have HIV-AIDS. Forty percent of them die from tuberculosis. It's also a particular danger for people who have weakened immune system for other reasons, such as people who smoke, alcoholics, or have any other disease. But it kind of seems like a disease from yesteryear that should already have been banished from the earth. Why hasn't it? That's a very good question. In the 90s, it looked like tuberculosis was on its way out. However, there are two things that complicated matters, and that's, you know, why we are where we are today. The first is the emergence of HIV-AIDS, so lots of people who are easy prey for tuberculosis. The second is the emergence of drug-resistant strains of the bacteria that causes the disease. Unfortunately, people wouldn't take the drugs or, you know, stop taking them before the course is finished, and that's how drug resistance evolves. But how is it diagnosed then? The most common method used to diagnose 
tuberculosis today is actually one that was used by the guy who discovered the pathogen in 1882. So it's a really ancient method. It's basically a lab technician looking under a microscope at a sample of a patient's sputum. So that's what you cough up and then just looking in that sample for the bacteria. And that's not a very good method. It misses about 50% of cases. And some of the tuberculosis specialists actually call it an embarrassment to science. So why is that still the way to diagnose it? Is there no better way to do it? It has to do with how much things cost. So there is a better method for about a decade. We've had fancy machines which can diagnose tuberculosis very quickly and also check for drug resistance. However, they're very expensive. A single test costs about $10, which is way out of reach for health centers in developing countries where most cases are. There's also a urine dipstick test, uh, which is cheaper. However, for some reason, it turns out to be particularly effective in diagnosing tuberculosis in people with HIV AIDS, but it's not so reliable for anybody else. And the good news is that the pipeline of new tests that are currently in development is quite full. So by one estimate, there are 18 products which may come up for review by the World Health Organization next year. And they are developed in a way to be more suitable for the context in developing countries. So just to be cheaper, more effective in diagnosing tuberculosis in all sorts of patients. So getting beyond diagnosis, how is TB treated now? So people with TB have to take lots of drugs for a very extended time period. In some cases, for as long as two years for some of the drug-resistant strains. And those are pretty hard regimens because you may have to take 20 pills a day and have injections with pretty bad side effects, uh, including, you know, it can be permanently deaf. And even that is not always successful. Treatment success rates for drug-resistant tuberculosis are in the range of 25 to 50 percent. And that, too, kind of sounds like an embarrassment to science. I mean, are there better plans there, too? Yes. The good news is that uh, in this area as well, there's a lot of research and development going on. There have been uh, several new drugs approved, which will shorten the treatment time. A new drug that was just approved by America's drug regulators called Pretomonid is shortening the course of treatment for the extremely drug-resistant strains to just six months. And these efforts to revamp the way diseases are diagnosed and treated are costly. I mean, where is the money coming from for all of this? That's the million-dollar question. More than a million. It's actually more than a million. It is estimated that the spending that's needed to really put the lid on tuberculosis, it's about $16 billion a year, which is a lot more than what is currently being spent. That includes tripling the amount spent on research and development and doubling what is currently spent on prevention and treatment. Governments in rich countries are paying for some of that through foreign aid. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has invested vast amounts of money in research and development. It's credited with a lot of the success that we are seeing in diagnostics and drugs for tuberculosis. But developing country governments will also have to put up more money because currently they pay for, you know, the cheapest thing out there, even though it's not very effective. And that's uh, bad because you have people who are not cured, people who die. People who continue to spread the disease. Exactly. And drug-resistant strains. 
But we have these seemingly old-timey ways of diagnosing and these seemingly largely ineffective and costly and onerous ways of treating and so on. Wouldn't it be better to sort of beat the disease at source? I mean, why isn't there a vaccine for this? There is a vaccine, but it's one that has been available since the 1920s. And unfortunately, it's not a very good vaccine. It's very good at preventing some of the most severe forms of tuberculosis in young children. But it's not very effective in preventing tuberculosis of the lungs, which is the form of the disease which is most common among adults. The good news here, again, is that there are several vaccine candidates in the pipeline in advanced clinical trials, and one of them is 50% effective, which may not seem like a lot, but when you're talking about a million and a half deaths per year, it is actually quite a good vaccine. The problem with that is that GlaxoSmithKline, the drug company that developed it, doesn't seem to be proceeding with the late-stage clinical trials needed to bring the vaccine to market. The real problem is basically who is going to pay for those trials because they're very expensive. It may cost something like half a billion dollars to finish the job. And the reason why there hasn't been a vaccine up to this point is just because it hasn't been commercially attractive. Back to the half a billion dollar question. That's right. Slavia, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. Isaac Newton explained gravity. Charles Darwin, the evolution of species. Albert Einstein, the theory of relativity. But one question has, for millennia, stumped the greatest minds and continues to do so. Eels are literally a funny fish. Nobody has ever seen a grown European eel mate, nor seen one after it has mated. Stanley Pignol is The Economist's European business and finance correspondent. But this holiday season, he's been writing about something decidedly fishier. Some really top-notch scientists have tried to crack this particular issue in the past. The first one actually is Aristotle. The conclusion he arrived at was that eels generate spontaneously. They come from mud. Another big-name scientist was Sigmund Freud. The first scientific paper he wrote involved cutting up 400 eels, looking for the testicles of the European eel, which of course he never found because European eels, as it turns out, don't have testicles. In your research then on how it is we came to know what little we do know about eels, what did you find? All the eels in Europe and America undergo this quite extraordinary migration. All eels procreate in what is known as the Sargasso Sea. It's kind of between Bermuda and the Caribbean. It's about 6,000 kilometers from the European coast and, you know, one or 2,000 kilometers from the American coast. Eels spawn there and their larvae drift from the Sargasso Sea back to Europe and to America, spend 20 years there, and then at the end of 20 years, they go back. That's another journey that takes over a year. And then they spawn, and then they die. Every year, best estimates would be that around 1.3 billion baby eels arrive in Europe. In the 1980s, it was about 100 times more than that. The European eel is critically endangered, which is very odd for a very common fish. And it is critically endangered because we don't understand its biology. So why not do what the sort of, you know, natural history documentary makers do and put some cameramen or some, you know, robotic cameras on the job? 
While some have tried, a couple of problems there. Firstly, eels swim very, very deep under the water and they swim very, very far. What scientists have had to do in order to get any kind of data from eels is to attach recording gizmos onto them. But because those gizmos can't communicate underwater, they detach from the eels and then feed back the data, either if they drift back onto a beach and they're found or by satellite. As you can imagine, that's quite expensive. And how does the fact that they're endangered change how they're fished? I went out on the Swedish eel coast and spent a couple of days with Hans Inge Olofsson, an eel fisherman, son of an eel fisherman, grandson of an eel fisherman. The day that we went out, we caught just over 100 eels, which is a pretty good take, but it's, a, it's kind of a small-scale commercial fishery. Because it's endangered, then it can only be fished by particular people, in this case, old men. Uh, most fish that you eat nowadays comes from aquaculture. So salmon farms, every other kind of fish farm that, that you can think of. But eels, you can't do that. There are eel farms, but what they are is you start with baby eels and you fatten up those eels. The baby eels you can basically only find in Europe nowadays. And so there is this enormous trade now where uh, baby eels are being smuggled uh, out of Europe into China and they are uh, then sold mostly into the Japanese market. Certainly by number of animals uh, smuggled, if not by value, this is now considered to be the biggest wildlife crime on the planet. So eels are still widely eaten. Eels in Europe have become what is known as a delicacy. On the other hand, they are wildly popular still in Japan and getting even more popular in China. It's worth noting, eel was a very, very common food once upon a time. When people talk about pie and mash, which is a sort of traditional East End grub, they meant eel pie. Now, if you go to a pie and mash restaurant in the East End, you'll still find some eel. I went to visit one and had jellied eels, which is the traditional cockney method of eating eels. But the jellied eel, some people like it. I find it very old-fashioned. So it's a very versatile food, and maybe appropriately, in Scandinavia certainly, it's a Christmas food. So if you're going to indulge, now's the time to do it. Right, but all told, you're not entirely head over eels. That is a terrible pun. Eel be damned. <laughs> Stanley, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. This is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.